So the title of today's message is, Hell, Is It Really Real? Is it really real? I want you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 17. We oftentimes start with verse 16, but today I'm going to start in verse 17 and just uh, read for you the words of Jesus in regard to the nature of this subject, and then we're going to dive in today. So John chapter 3, verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's really great news. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. What an amazing set of verses and I wish we had time to comb down through each one but just kind of a summary there is that God's purpose of coming into the world was not to condemn it, not to judge it. His purpose was to save, to get a way out. And he said that we are the ones that uh, uh, choose that process. When we hear the message, we're the ones that choose. And it says that we can continue to, to dive into the deeds of darkness and cover up and, and try to, um, again, uh, not let God see us, but he sees everything. And it says that when we come to the light then, this is the verdict. It says when we come to the light, God begins to shine. It begins to help us and set us free. And when we're in that process, it's actually God doing it in us and through us. It's not us doing it ourselves. And that's the great news of this relationship that we have with a loving God, a living God, that it's not something that we journey with by ourselves, but he is with us and promises to never leave us. Today, we're going to look at uh, probably, I'm just going to lay out a lot of facts for you today in Scripture. We're going to relook at Scripture in a way that maybe you haven't looked at before. What I'm primarily going to do is to not really mess with the dogma of hell. What do I mean by that? Meaning that I'm not going to reason away that hell doesn't exist and people won't be punished. I'm not going there today. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what Jesus teaches. But I will, before I'm finished, probably mess with your traditional doctrines of what you believe about all of that uh, aspect of, of going there and what happens to people there and, and so forth. I probably will mess with traditional doctrines in that way. Why am I saying that? It's because that God messed with my traditional doctrines. I was, uh, grew up in a Christian family. I was, uh, accepted Jesus when I was 12. When uh, 1992, graduated from seminary, I've been uh, now basically preaching for 30 years. And uh, just within the last year, I've investigated this doctrine of hell that I hadn't before in my whole Christian upbringing. Well, is that that I didn't have a view? Well, sure, I had a view, but it was one of those that was just kind of I just took it for what, what was said, you know, what was preached and what I read and what people said. I just kind of took it at face value. 
And then we had a guest speaker here about a year ago that wrote a book related to the subject and I read his material and I said, oh my goodness, maybe I'm missing something compared to what I have been believing all of my life and then what the Word of God actually says. I began to, you know, uh, walk around on one foot saying, wait a minute, that which I had, had grasped and understood, suddenly maybe it's not quite what I think it is. And then I read another, another book, which I have, uh, have here that I'm going to maybe read a few, um, just a little excerpt out of. And, and I read that and began to outline what the Word of God actually says about hell and punishment and who's there and how long they're there and all that. And I'm like, wow, that, that's amazing, coming literally right out of Scripture. And then that resource led me to a, another, uh, actually it's a movie, of how a fellow went on his own journey to discover basically a doctrine of hell, I would call it, and where he came out and the, the kind of the, kinch, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the thing that made the difference in his understanding, and I'll share that with you as well. So why do I say all that? It's because I've been on a journey too, all right? And if you push back on me this morning and, and don't accept what I'm saying, you know, uh, then get on your journey because I, I was on a journey. I, I'm probably not done yet because it's new, you, 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 you get shaken in a doctrine that you believe and find out maybe it's more of a doctrine of man than a doctrine of God. For instance, uh, his disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They settled that. You're the Messiah. And so their expectation of a Messiah that he was going to be king and take over. He's going to throw the Romans down and put handcuffs on them and carry them out of the city and the Jews are going to go, yeah, we're free. That was a doctrine that they carried in their head. But what happened? The next week, Jesus is put on a cross. That wasn't in their belief system of what their Messiah would do. But that was exactly what God wanted done through his son. He needed to go on that cross because he had a whole bigger picture in mind than just his 12 disciples and, and setting their nation free. He wanted to set hearts free of everybody in the world. And so they had to change their doctrine. They fought against it. Peter said, Lord, stop saying that. And Jesus had to rebuke the devil out of him. I mean, that's crazy, getting his doctrine straight. That's pretty intense. So, again, I just say all that, that it sh we, shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from the fact that sometimes we've grown up with things that we believe just because we trust. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying that sometimes there has to come a time when we examine our doctrine about certain things and go back to the Word of God and and through and, and let the Holy Spirit inform us and pray as well and let the God, let God speak to us in a fresh way rather than just receive that which has been given to us over years and years of accumulation all right so that's kind of my disclaimer up front let's jump in here today uh, first of all I want to say that we have built within us a conscience of justice. We're talking about hell and God punishing the wicked and the unjust. But we as individuals have built within us this conscience of justice. Think about it. Whether you're a follower of Christ today or not, you have built within you a, 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 a sense of right and wrong. Now it might be based on a lie. Because there's people in other nations that haven't heard about Jesus yet, but even in their culture, how they live, there is a right and wrong in their culture. 
And so that's embedded within, embed within each one of us as being created in the image of God, that we have this sense of this is right and this is wrong, this needs to be corrected, this needs to be re-examined. We have that built within us. Everybody has that. That's probably nothing new. But yet as we walk in to this message this morning, I think we have to keep that in mind, that we have this sense of justice within us, then why can't we let God be just? Because oftentimes what happens is that we want God to see it our way. And we're, we have a limited view. We have feelings. We have emotional attachments. We have, we have brokenness in our life that colors how we see things. And suddenly we're telling God, you're not just. Who are we? To say that to God. And yet, God has put within every one of us this sense of right and wrong because we've been created in his image. He's put that there. And that's why we have it. As we look at, at this sense of, of justice, again, I, uh, I have, have written there for you that doing what's right or correcting what's wrong is a characteristic of being created in the image of God. A couple of scriptures. Genesis 9-6 Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall the blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Again, we could, uh, the, uh, kind of a sideline message is the whole idea of just wars and unjust wars and everything. We're not going to go there. But God just actually, you know, he, the boils down to say we don't have a right to take somebody else's life. Because they are created in the image of God just like you. And, and God uh, outlines that uh, in his word. Then Romans 12 uh, Romans 9 14 again it says what shall we say is God unjust not at all he's the absolutely most just person that is alive that lives backing up Proverbs 17 15 he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous both alike are an abomination to the Lord you see that he who justifies the wicked, in other words, you're basically saying wicked is right. Or, on the flip side, he who condemns what is righteous, both are an abomination to the Lord. That's a proverb that was given to man to write down, to recognize that there is a right and there is a wrong. Again, it could be based upon a culture, it could be based on a lie. But the fact is, we have a righteous or a justice meter that is within us. What happens at the human level, <clears throat> again, we bring God down to, to our level rather than recognizing that we need to come up to his level. God is 100% just. He can't be unjust. It's impossible for him or he wouldn't be God. The second Thing number two is the four places described where the unrighteous are punished. I want to just talk about the four words that are used in Scripture that uh, we would relate to as being hell. All right? So the first one is the word hell itself. I'll give you the Greek word. The interesting thing about this word is it's only actually used one time in the Bible. The actual word hell is only used one time in scripture 
That kind of astounds us, doesn't it? Because we read the Bible and we see it being used at various places. However, in the New Testament, most often the word Hades is translated hell in, in our English Bibles. But in reality, when you dive into the original language, the only time hell is actually used with the Greek word is one time. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned and sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So this verse actually conveys that God is sending evil angels to hell. Does it say anything about humans? The word hell there, uh, if you dive into it, it means dark dungeons or the deepest of the pit. You go into the pit, it's the deepest part of the pit. That's kind of a description of that word hell if you, if you, you study into it and, and, uh, and bring it out. Hell is prepared for evil angels. That's what this verse calls out. The next word that's used is the word sheol. I'll get it straight here. Sheol. This is commonly only used in the, New, in the Old Testament, not the New. In the Old Testament, the word sheol was used. It's an abode of the departed. That's what it means, the abode of the departed, where the departed live, in sheol. A couple of scriptures here that, um, that uh, talk about sheol. Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for sheol. Death will be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. It talks about, again, where, the, where punishment happens in a place called Sheol. Now this is interesting because we get to Psalm 139 that David wrote and verse 8 says this. See, we oftentimes think that hell is the absence of God. But Psalm 139, if Sheol is connected with hell at all, here we have this verse that says, well, 139 verse 8, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now that's interesting. That God's actually there in Sheol. So that kind of like, uh, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about a total separation. And then I got, I, we're still in the Old Testament. Christ has yet to come. I get that. But it says that God actually is there. His presence is there in Sheol. Now in the New Testament, I quote two verses that doesn't actually mention the word Sheol, but it really insinuates what Sheol is all about. 2 Timothy 1.10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This verse says that death was abolished and he's brought to light immortality. Through the gospel of Jesus. And Hebrews, I think you have one there. It should be two. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore children. Sure, uh, uh, since therefore the children. In flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of some things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And here we see in these two verses where it says that Jesus Christ rescued those 
and he brought them out. Now, again, we have to ask the question, where were they when they were being rescued? Again, it leaves it a little bit open, but it does say this, that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection on the cross, he took the power of death away from Satan. He removed that power. So apparently, Satan had the power of death before Jesus died, and after his death and resurrection, Jesus says, I'll take those keys, thank you. And now he controls how death operates, not Satan anymore. All right, we jump down to the third word. And again, this is oftentimes translated in our English Bible, hell, when actually if you dive into it, it is the word Hades. And this is uh, simply a place held for judgment. A place, Hades is called a place held for judgment. 2 Peter 2.9 reads, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This verse seems to indicate that after we die, those who haven't said yes to Jesus, they're in punishment, but there's a day of judgment that is coming after the punishment. We continue. Hebrews 9, 7. But into the second, he's talking about Jesus, or the priest rather, walking into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest goes, but he once a year, and not without taking blood, which offers for himself and for unintentional sins of the people. Well, that's great news because there's times that I have sinned and I didn't even know it. I didn't know I hurt somebody. I didn't know the comment that I made that made them, made them question, you know, my character or something. I didn't know it. And so this can happen to us in life. The beauty is that after Jesus came, that, that still covering still remains. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about the fact that the atoning blood that Jesus shed for us is current. In other words, before we get the chance to repent or ask for forgiveness or, or figure out what we've been wrong, that the blood of Jesus is covering us the whole time unintentionally, that we knew that something was going wrong. Because we don't desire to disappoint God, we desire to please Him. That's on our new condition and, and uh, that's our, our new nature that we have been given. Continuing on, Revelation 118. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is Jesus talking. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Actual word there. I have the keys of death and Hades. So he has the keys of death. Jesus does, not the devil anymore. So that's kind of what Hades is all about. Then the last word that is used to describe hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is uh, uh, the name of an actual real place outside of Jerusalem. It is where they dump the garbage and it was always on fire. They were always burning the garbage. It's not a place that you want to hang out at. It's not a place that you want to go picnic at. It is just always burning the garbage of the city, the people who live there. And Jesus referred to that at different times about the fires of Gehenna. Again, it's translated hell in our Bible, but it's referring to a literal place. Jesus was making an association of what would happen or how people would experience if they didn't follow him what the punishment would be. And uh, so the word Gehenna is used there of the garbage dump. 
let me do a couple of scriptures real quick. Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. He's speaking to religious leaders. How, you, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? But the word there is Gehenna. How are you, how are you expecting to escape being sentenced to Gehenna? Then Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It talks about fire there is, uh, is being prepared for those who don't believe and the punishment that they receive. Now I want to walk into, uh, have a, a list of about five different examples of the different punishment that those will receive that actually go there um, at this place. Uh, again, uh, whether, whether we call it um, hell, whether you call it uh, Hades, uh, you know, where it is, it's actually a, a place that, uh, that people go, whether there's punishment and then there's judgment. Again, that uh, seems, scripture seems to indicate that progression. And, um, and so these, these things are um, is what you will, um, or what someone that doesn't say yes to Jesus will experience. The first thing is quenching fire. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So it seems to indicate that those who said no to Jesus are cast into this lake as well. The second thing is intense darkness. Matthew 25, 30. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. Into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't, uh, don't know of, um, yes, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know if you've ever visited a caverns. And in the midst of your tour, they've turned the lights off. And you, for the first time, have experienced total darkness. It's not an easy place to be for those ten seconds. That they leave you. Total darkness. Intense darkness. You get a taste. Of something that those that are being punished. Will receive. Then the next thing that's mentioned in scripture. Is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13. 41 and 42. The son of man will send his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom. All the causes of sin. And all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds pretty emotional to me, doesn't? Pretty intense place. And then finally, um, well, actually, two more. One is the separation from God. Again, I mentioned Seol, God's presence is there, but in Matthew, there seems to be a clear separation. Jesus saying that. On that day, you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now that's a, that's a, uh, like a come to Jesus verse. <laughs> Wait a minute, Lord. I was doing all this in your name. I was casting out demons. I was doing mighty works. Jesus said, I don't know you. That's like a real puzzle, isn't it? What was happening? They were using the name of Jesus, which has power in itself. It's actually recorded in the book of Acts that some tried to do that. They didn't get very far. But the name of Jesus itself has power, whether you have the right motives or the wrong motives. And Jesus ends this verse. They were doing all these things for God. And Jesus said, I don't know you. 
That's just scared the bejeebies out of us. I'm telling you, I don't know what bejeebies are, but let's just get them out. I mean, that, that, that's a wake-up call. I was talking with somebody that came out of a Catholic background, and, and uh, they just made this offhanded comment. They said, you know, I believed Jesus, but I didn't know him. I thought, wow, is that it? I believed Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I just didn't know him. And how many of us can get busy and get in the same place? Uh, wow. Anyhow, just a wake-up call. The last one is this, agony and torment. In Luke chapter 16, 22 through 24, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. And being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and, um, uh, um, by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip his, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Wow, what a, what a condition to be in, what a place to be in. Not enough water, uh, anguish, torment. Again, these are things that the Bible describes those that reject God's love, reject his plan for our lives, reject that, that he has decided to uh, take all of our sins, all of our ways, and remove them as far as the east is from the west. We reject that. And we want to accept our own punishment. These are the kinds of things that I just read that people that have, would, would do that will actually experience. That's not pleasant to read. But that's the reality of what the Word of God and Jesus, Jesus talks about. So as we uh, get ready to dive into number four, this is where it's going to get a little bit dicey, all right? Because what's happening in number four is that I'm going to start to unravel doctrines that we have held for many years. And then all of a sudden we go back to the Word of God and begin to look at what the Word of God actually says. That what we have held for many years then suddenly is not what the Bible actually says. And it's kind of a, a, a wake-up moment. And so... Um, it, you, you, as I journey down through, you may push back and go, wow, I'm not there yet. That's fine. I had my own journey. All right. I give you freedom to uh, examine and to walk through your own journey as I have walked through mine. So that's my little uh, disclaimer in that uh, regard. And uh, now we're just going to jump in. The question number four is how long does the punishment last? Those that are in hell, how long does it last? And so the traditional view is that it lasts forever. That's what I grew up with. That's what I've been told. It lasts forever. That you burn in hell forever. That's what I was, grew up with. That's what I didn't question. That's what I believed. As I get into Scripture and I begin to examine this again, the only verse that actually comes close to that is Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. It says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, you can read that to say it's eternal punishment. Or you can read that to say the punishment's eternal, but does the person experience punishment for eternity? I know I'm splitting hairs on that. 
But it is possible to read it differently. And yet, if that's where you're at, that's where you're at. I was there for a long time. The second view of how long we spend there is the symbolic view. I say right up, I don't subscribe to this view, but maybe this is where you are at. Symbolic. Here's a scripture that uh, is used to support this kind of, of, of viewpoint. It says, for him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or earth. And uh, Jesus says, I'm going to reconcile all things. There's a scripture in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. It says, as all in Adam die, all in Christ will be made alive. And there's this view of that hell's just symbolic, that God and his love is not going to let people go to hell. He's going to jump in at the last moment, and he's going to rescue them and pull them out and redirect their life so that they get to enjoy heaven for eternity. Again, symbolic view Lots of times there's other things that are connected to this, this viewpoint, not just that God's going to redeem all things. I've even heard it said he's even going to redeem the devil and his angels. I'm like, well, that's a stretcher. I don't think so. That's not what the Word of God says. And yet sometimes people begin to uh, kind of reason out, wait a minute. If you are a father and you have a son and your son disobeys you, do you still love him or her? Sure you do. And if your children actually get to the point that they say, Dad and Mom, I don't agree with your theology. I don't agree with your God. I'm going to turn my back and walk away. Would they cease to be your son and daughter? No, biologically, they are. Still your son and daughter. But what does the Word of God say? And so they use this reasoning of saying that because we're created in God's image, that we're all actually God's sons and daughters. Therefore, he's not, gonna, he's not this mean God that can't wait to punish us and send us to a place of everlasting burn. He's not going to do that because we are actually created in his image, sons and daughters. We just made a bad turn. So I was pondering that and... And I uh, happened to think about the father who, one son, <clears throat> left home, got in his face, said, I want inheritance, and I'm only going to spend it. It's called a prodigal son, and he left. The second son stayed home, but he had his own issues as well. He turned religious. And so when the younger son came back, and the father welcomed him in, he was speaking to the older son. And at the end of that illustration, he uses these terms to the older brother. We have to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. The father uses very definitive terms. He didn't say, oh, he was misguided. Oh, I, I, you know, oh, I sent, uh, sent the boat out to rescue him and we pulled him in. No, I jumped in. No, that son came back because he was convicted of the Lord. He repented and said, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you, Dad. And that was the reason why he was dead. 
But now he's alive because he repented. He was lost and now he was found. He uses very definitive terms that to me speak to this idea that God is so relational he won't let his kids be punished if they say no to him. The story illustrates that. So sometimes we hear things and, and, and we buy into things that, that seem like it, it sounds good, but in reality it's not. We have to go back to Scripture. Here's another one. And I'm, I'm way out of my league on this one, okay? But uh, it is a viewpoint. It's called purgatory. And if you grew up Catholic, you would have heard the term. It's really degrees of punishment. And uh, I'm not doing this justice. Let me, let me jump into the actual definition that I found, and I'll probably be corrected by I'm done, and I'm okay with that. So the Catholics say that purgatory is a place of intermediate purification of sins, that things get worked out so that we're then prepared to go to heaven. That's kind of the textbook definition of purgatory, which again is a doctrine, it's a belief. And the only thing that I would pick out of that that I understand is included in purgatory is that you will, there's, in other words, um, God will punish um, certain sins more than others. For example, we, we would have this in our own sense of justice. Uh, if you get a speeding ticket, does a speeding ticket merit the death penalty? We've got, no, no, not a... I mean, if a candy... Uh, if, a, if a child stole candy from Walmart and got caught, would you then lock them up for 15 years? Well, no, that's unjust. So even we and ourselves have this sense of, of uh, you, you apply the penalty for the crime, and when you do the crime, you get out. Again, that's, that's kind of how we, we do justice in our, in our nation and, and so forth. So uh, you, you have this, this thing of, of where, where uh, certain uh, things that people know. Or in other words, there's a difference between somebody never hearing the name of Jesus versus somebody that grew up hearing about Jesus and deliberately saying no and walking away from him. There's a, there's a difference between, because this person knows the truth. Hebrews speaks to that. They know the truth. And yet they deliberately choose to walk away versus someone that had never even heard before. They're like just waiting for the name of Jesus to come to them. And, of course, God's doing an amazing thing all over the world, appearing to people in dreams and visions. And he's just getting the word out even though the bodies aren't there yet. So he's a great God, and he loves, loves his creation. And he's, uh, I think that's a result of people praying. Uh, that people are seeing more dreams and visions, but that's just a, a side note. Let me give you a scripture here that, that kind of bears that out. It's, it's really Jesus is talking to cities. And uh, he, uh, he's talking to Capernaum, which was incidentally his hometown. And he was talking about uh, other cities that in the Old Testament that had been punished or had been destroyed because they weren't God followers, and he cites the difference. Let me just, just read. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. All right, so Jesus is speaking to cities here, and he said that if Sodom and Gomorrah would have seen the mighty works of God, they would have repented and turned. But you, Capernaum, you have seen the Messiah. You've seen the word. You've seen the miracles. You've heard the teaching, and yet you're walking away. It's going to be way more 
you're going to get way more punishment than Sodom that was wicked and evil, but they, again, just didn't know. Okay? Now, the last one, again, is where perhaps I'll walk into dicey territory and traditionalists may push back on me, but here goes, all right? The last uh, view of uh, how long we've been there is annihilation. And uh, that is after punishment, we cease to exist. You're like, wow, what is that one? Maybe it's the first time hearing that one. I, I did find a website that I found that was very, very helpful in how it just outlines scriptures and so forth. And it's called thinkersbiblestudies.com. Thinkersbiblestudies.com. I'll put that in the newsletter this week and we can put it online for those watching so you can go to it. Again, I, I looked at the whole view of hell on this website. I didn't look at anything else and... The, the other stuff could be way off base, but I thought this was very helpful. All right, so a little disclaimer there. Sometimes people go into websites and they're like, whoa, they're saying this about that. I was like, oh, I didn't see that. You know, I kind of zero in on, on what I'm looking for and then kind of uh, go on. But uh, it was just full of scriptures is what it was. And it, the way it was outlined, I thought, was, was uh, very, very helpful. Um, let's look at a few scriptures in regards to this view. In Matthew 3, 12 He's talking about G John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with quenchable fire. Now, when we read passages like this, we just superimpose that the chaff is going to be burning forever and ever and ever. But that's not what the passage says. It says that it's going to, that the chaff is actually going to burn up. It's in unquenchable fire. The fire stays burning, but the chaff is done. When the fire gets done with the chaff, the chaff is gone. It's, a, it's not there anymore. But yet sometimes we superimpose this, that which we've grown up with on top of a tradition that we have and we read Scripture through that grid. Wanda uh, told me about uh, somebody in the prophet world that had passed away recently, and, and she told me the name. Well, I immediately superimposed that name on another person. They were similar, but not the same. And I asked my friend that knew that person, I, I said, uh, did this person die? He said, oh, no, he was in the pulpit last Sunday. And then I said, Wanda, that's a hoax on Facebook. She said, no, he really did. I, I, I'm like, no, I just talked to him, and he, he's alive. I mean, I had no clue. I had absolutely taken this person, superimposed this other individual on it, close name but not related. We were in another segment, and it came up again. I go, no, he's still living. They're like, look at me like, you're nuts. <laughs> and I got into the car, and I said, Wanda, who was that person? And she told me the actual name, and I go, oh, wow. What is the matter with me? Maybe God just had me go through that, use it as an illustration. <laughs> and I was like, wow, how did I do that? I took a name that was close and superimposed another name on top. And I thought it was about that individual, and it wasn't. It can happen. We have to go back to Scripture. We have to dive in and make sure that we're, uh, we're uh, clear. Here's another one, John 3.16. Wow, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What does the word perish mean? Does that mean burn in hell forever? See, we never thought about it. I didn't think about it before. I just assumed. Perish. 
You look it up, it means destroy. That's what it means, to be destroyed. Wow. Let me, let me give you some other, other scriptures. Again, I'm, just, I, I'm journeying with you through something I've journeyed through. And uh, not that I'm asking you to believe what I'm believing. But we're, we all will give an account to the scriptures. James 4.12 There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Matthew 7.13 and 14 Broad is the road that leads to destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 who has punished with everlasting destruction. Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction. Galatians 6.8, from the nature will reap destruction. Psalm 92.7 is the key that they, evildoers, shall be destroyed forever. Wow. Could it be? That those that say no to Jesus are punished and then cease to exist? It's really based upon one other doctrine. Whether or not you will ascribe to it or whether or not you reject it. And the doctrine that you have to settle in order to dive into that one is, are we born mortal or are we born immortal? That's the question. Because if we're born immortal, then we're already eternal. And it's just where we spend it. If we're born mortal, and when we receive Jesus, we receive immortality, then if we don't receive Jesus, we're still mortal. So, Guess where the idea of us being born immortal is from? Plato. Plato and his philosophers were the ones that even before Jesus were the ones that espoused the idea that we are born immortal. Go back, do your research. See where it came from. It's not in Scripture. In fact, Adam and Eve, we would say, well, see, what happens is that we, we, we believe that we're created in the image of God. We automatically impose that we're immortal when we're created in the image of God. But even Adam and Eve, after they sinned, what did God do? He prevented them from eating from the tree of life because if they would have, they would have been immortal in their sins. And he stopped them. He loved them. He said, no, you're not going to eat from that tree of life. Therefore, you will be trapped in your son, sin and you can't get out. But I'm going to take care of this in the future. You wait and see. I'm going to send a savior, my son, that is going to take care of this. But don't you touch that tree of life because you will be immortally in your sin and you will burn forever and can't get out. You guys okay? So, Again, you know, there, there's people that, 
I run across at different times have a real challenge. How can a loving God send people to hell? That's a great question, isn't it? How do you answer that one? We say that God is love, and yet if they don't choose him, they burn in hell forever. That's like, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. I'm not afraid of it. It bothered me for a long time, this whole thing of, of that. I used, to, I used to believe that we were born eternally and that we just decide which way. Again, I, I shared that doctrine for many years and it wasn't until recently that if you look into Scripture, you'll find all the listings of mortal men, mortal men, mortal men, and women too. You can be included. It talks about being mortal. In fact, let me read this little may clear it up for you or, or may whatever let's go for it first corinthians 15 52 through 54 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye in the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We're created in the image of God. But yet I find myself being open to the reality that we were created mortal. And if we receive Jesus, we receive immortality now going back to my question how does a loving God send people to hell I find that this view satisfies several things number one I find it in scripture the second thing is that I find that it encompasses the love of God because he gave us a way out it encompasses the justice of God because those that decide that they want to receive their own punishment get it. That satisfies the justice of God. But it also satisfies the mercy of God in that after their punishment is received, they cease to exist. That's the mercy of God. Where the other only satisfies God loves certain people and he's angry at other people and can't wait to punish them. But this view that I've discovered, and again, you can journey, you're through it, we can have dialogue about it, find that it's the love of God, it's the justice of God, and also the mercy of God. I love, I love the Lord in the way that he ends up revelation is that he ends up not with <clears throat> you're going to burn if you don't turn but he ends up with a lifeline number five take the lifeline while it exists revelation 22:17. the spirit and the bride say come let the one who hears come let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life he could have ended up 
And he does, basically stating what's going to happen to the disobedient and the evil and the unrighteous. But that's not where he ends. He ends with throwing another lifeline and say, come all, come. This is not what I want for you. This is what you're going to get if you don't choose, but come. He throws out another lifeline at the end of the book, and that's what I throw out today. Maybe you don't have it clearly settled in your mind about the issues that I've talked about. But maybe one thing is in mind, you're not sure where you stand with Jesus. Well, today's a great day to get that settled. Because Romans 10, 9, and 10 simply says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. The first lesson that we will walk through in living a changed life is how do I know that I'm saved? And I'm surprised at people that you would think, and you ask them, how do you know you're saved? They're like, oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I hope so. I'm, I'm like, really? So that's the first lesson we're going to walk through in our, our discipleship here starting in September. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to, to uh, dig into a subject matter that, uh, Lord, is uh, not necessarily easy to preach on Sunday morning, and yet you, Jesus... Um, you were only uh, conveying what your heavenly Father was uh, was giving you, and uh, and you talked about these things, and you brought it up to people, and and so uh, we should have the comfortability and the freedom to be open to learn and grow. I pray, God, that you would just uh, come and show us where we're at in our heart, Lord. Only you know where each person in this place and listening online is in their heart, God. It's not about uh, that we exhibit everything get it right all the time in what we say and do and even how we think Lord but it's really who's in our heart and our desire to please you over all things and so Father I pray that you would you would take this message and, and put it in the right context for everyone here to be able to process and, and hear you not hear me not just accept my journey that I've been on but really that they would journey for themselves to dig into scripture and to see what you are saying, Lord. In reality, Lord, these, uh, these doctrinal aspects, um, it doesn't necessarily matter um, because what really matters is we know that you're a good God and you want the best for us. And that if we choose no, You've already set it up for those to receive the punishment, which is really what they built up in their own life. In a sense, you don't really have anything to do with their punishment because we build it up ourselves. God, thank you for a way out. Thank you for Jesus. I want to leave you with this verse out of I think it's Romans. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus.